Welcome to the Writer's Right Podcast, the show where every writer has the right to speak their mind. I'm your host, Joshua Howe, and as always, we'll be giving attention to the last thing my guest has written and the writing process. Today's guest is the senior sports editor of the Gonzaga Bulletin, a writer at B-Ball Breakdown, Liberty Ballers, and the B-Ball Index, and he's also one of the most consistently hardworking people on NBA Twitter. It's Jackson Frank. How are you doing, man? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm really good. Um, it's really hot and muggy here in uh, Ontario, Canada. It's hot here in Portland as well. I got got the fans fans bumping. It's only 10:30 in the morning, but uh, I can relate to that that uh, that weather issue. Oh man, yeah. Do you got do you have AC where you at right now? I I don't. We've we've Ooh. got I've got fans in my house all over, but no no AC uh, in the house. But when I'm at work, I have I have AC, so I'm I'm not always against. Uh, Working a lot when it's hot, but uh, got a short end of the stick in that regard uh, today. <laughs> yeah, I totally hear you. And um, yeah, you're from Portland. I've never actually spoken to anyone from Portland before, which is cool. And um, I noticed that uh, you've got your Twitter banner is Brandon Roy, and which is awesome because anytime anyone asks me what's one player you wish he could have extended their career if they didn't have an injury, my answer is always Brandon Roy. Um, so. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. I wanted to ask, yeah. are, are you still like, are you still a Blazers fan right now? Or are you more of like a general NBA fan now that you're doing like writing for a whole bunch of different teams? Yeah, you know, I, I'd still say I'm a, I'm a pretty big Blazers fan. Um, I've definitely shifted more towards a a general NBA consumer as as of late as I, I write more about things. But I'd still say, or uh, overall, I, I root for the Blazers among or above everything else. Um, definitely not quite as as prevalent and, and prominent on my. Uh, my Twitter feed, just because I, I cover other teams, and so that's where a lot of my opinions and content is uh, is focused. But I still say the Blazers are, are my hometown team, a team I, I uh, definitely try to watch uh, the majority of their games this year when I can. Yeah, I find that um, sometimes, like when you start writing about a sport too, and if you have a hard time being objective, maybe because you've been a fan for a long time, like even growing up. Um, it's good to start writing about other teams. Like I've been a Raptors fan forever and I obviously write about the Raptors now, but I actually started writing about like the Cavs and um, a couple other teams that hoops have it years ago. So uh, that kind of helped, I think. Um, yeah, no, I, when I first started writing last year, I, uh, I, I started writing for fan side and I, I got a few teams to choose and I, I intentionally didn't ask for the Blazers because I wanted to remain as, as objective as I could, obviously, as you write more about a team, you kind of you kind of start to root for them a little bit. I think is, is pretty common. Um, but yeah, that was definitely my goal is to not just write about the Blazers and be a fanboy and have a bunch of, <laughs> of biased takes and whatnot. And I, I used to write about the Blazers every now and then, but I try to really avoid writing about them too much because I know my uh, my opinion and my my emotion will kind of seep into it. Yeah, that's fair enough. Um, and thankfully, uh, the piece we have today is another like one of the uh, branches that. Again, not a team uh, I've seen write about a lot, but um, yet a fantastic piece on the Wizards um, as a Raptors fan, a team that I love to laugh at when they're not doing well. Um, (laughs) But as an objective observer, a team that I'm fascinated by because there's just so much weird stuff going on with the Wizards like all the time, 24-7. And last season was no exception, especially with the wall injury and stuff, so... Um, yeah, your piece we're talking about today that you wrote uh, on Clutch Points, B-Ball Breakdown, is uh, to avoid mediocrity, sustain mediocrity, John Wall and the Wizards Must Evolve. Um, that's what it's titled. You can go and read it now. It's really good. Uh, so this is what I wanted to talk to you about. And I think I just wanted to start off asking, uh, assuming the health 
of the whole team. So we're just going to assume they're healthy because I like to assume every team is going to be healthy. Yeah, for sure. No, I, I, like, I like to do things that way too when I can. Yeah, so where do you think the Wizards are going to finish in the East? This yeah, year? you know, assuming health, um, I mean, obviously two years ago when, when Wall had a career year and, and Beal kind of finally started to stay healthy uh, and whatnot, they, they were the fourth seed and within a game of, of the Eastern Conference Finals. But uh, the East is a lot better now. Um, so I think assuming they could be one game away from an Eastern Conference Finals appearance is, is a little bit optimistic. Um, I, I would have them, them six right now. Uh, I think I think Boston and Toronto are clearly the two best teams, whatever order you want to put them. Uh, and then I, I have Philly, Indiana, and Milwaukee kind of in that second tier with Philly, a, a leg up, a little bit of a leg up on those on Indiana and Milwaukee. And then and then I, I kind of cluster. I'd have Washington, Miami, even Detroit if Detroit's healthy, um, kind of in that six, seven, eight. And then I'm sure somebody else might sneak in there and make it make it a race. Um, they, they have talent, obviously. John Wall is a really good player. Bradley Beal's uh, coming to his own and become a, a premier shooting guard. Um, Otto Porter's obviously really good nowadays. Austin Rivers can do some stuff off the bench. Um, but, but I just think the the coaching and, and the offensive scheme and, and, and Dwight being Dwight Howard being there, um, I'm just not super optimistic that they're going to be a team that, that comes close to 50 wins like they were two years ago. That's actually incredible because I think you just listed the exact order of my rankings for the East. Um, and I literally, I just did this like half hour ago. I was like, ah, oh, you know what? I'm going to go through it. I'm going to see. I haven't actually looked through this yet. Um, I know it's, you know, it's like August, whatever. What else am I going to do? It doesn't matter. Not really. But, you know, I'm sitting here. I'm going to do it. I think Raptors, Celtics are like interchangeable one, two for me. And then I had sick the Sixers. And then uh, I think Milwaukee's going to take a big leap this year because they have like a real coach this season. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, they I, I was on a podcast a couple of days ago with uh, Alex Juno, who covers the Bucks. Um, does a great job doing that. Mm-hmm. And we were talking about kind of some of the Bucks prospects, um, and he made a good point that it, it's not just that Budenholzer is probably going to add two or three wins; it's that Kid and Prunty probably cost the team two or three wins. And so yeah. Yeah. when you add those things together, it's, it's four or five, six wins that you didn't have a season prior. And now, now you're looking at maybe close to fifty wins and all that. So um, yeah, the Bucks are going to be an exciting and an intriguing team too, with with that with Giannis and a couple of other fun pieces they have and good, good talent they have to see what they can do with uh, not just average coaching, but, but the really good coaching under, under Budenholzer. Yeah, I think if they'd had Coach Bud uh, last postseason, I actually think they would have beaten the Celtics in that series. I don't, I don't think that series would have gone to seven games either. Um, yeah, no, I, mean, I, I could see that. I mean, I, I, I didn't admittedly catch every single game of, um, of that series. I watched a lot of them, obviously. But, uh, yeah, there were definitely some coaching decisions and, and lineup decisions that kind of left you scratching your head and, and wondering if that really, if that cost them, cost them a game or two or a quarter or two. Yeah, hundred uh, percent. And then yeah, so and then I had Indiana right after that, and then uh, and then the Wizards sitting comfortable in the sixth spot. Um, I do think they're better than like eighth, like they were last year. Um, yeah. as, as the Raptors love to remind everybody in the playoffs, oh, they're you know they're better than a normal eight seed, which was kind of grating. Um, but I do think they are better. Um, I, I, not that much better, but they are better. And then Heat, yeah. Pistons, kind of closing. I will up. say though, it was it was hilarious last year before before the unfortunate meltdown of the Raptors that people were were trying to trying to shoot Toronto down when they went to six games with with the Wizards <laughs> yeah. without Van Vliet for five of them and Wall mm-hmm. against a team that their best player missed half the season. It's like that's that wasn't normal eight seed. And the conditions weren't the same. So it's true. Um, obviously, the Toronto haters had enough uh, ammo to to fire off for the rest of the summer. Um, but that first run series kind of bugged me because it's like, it just wasn't, 
the context wasn't the same. It was just wasn't just a one versus eight with two teams fully healthy all year in the in the playoffs. Yeah. Plus, it was it was a pretty fun series. I don't know. There were people that didn't. I guess didn't really enjoy oh, it that much. I enjoyed, but. I enjoyed it a lot. Those, that was one of the the series that I, I circled and, and tried to watch a lot of their games. Of, um, I mean, I, I I don't think John Wall is that fun of a player to watch, truthfully. But when he's mm-hmm. on, he's really fun. And Kyle Lowry is one of my favorite players to watch. Um, mm-hmm. Watching DeRozan play well was was fun. And that was it was just a fun overall series. With a lot of a lot of all star talent uh, kind of dueling back and forth. Yeah, it was pretty neat. And you got all those debates about. You know who's the best player in the series, and yeah, um, yeah, it was fun. I liked it, and Jonas Valanciunas just finally getting over that Gortat mountaintop and just <laughs> going nuts. Um, yeah, I, I really enjoyed that series, but um, yeah. So your piece is mostly on John Wall and like looking at leadership, um, and mostly like on the floor type of leadership, um, which I think is interesting because uh, when he's fully healthy and you know, really raring to go. And I, there's been some good, like, videos come out this summer about how he looks, you know, in practice games and, um, you know, whatever random leagues he's playing in in the offseason. Um, but he's been he's been pretty good. So he looks like he's going to be fully healthy, despite that hilarious picture that came out from USA, I think, basketball camp. I, it is hilarious that, that, one, the Wizards thought it was a good idea to tweet that out, and that was going to give their star player good publicity. And, two... Got the immediate backlash that came as a result of the memes <laughs> and all the quote tweets about it. Yeah, uh, persuaded them to take it down and, and kind of come to their senses there. Um, and that that whole thing was was hilarious. I I would love to hear the story about that. One um, one of these days, one of these one of these months coming up, and uh, just just why he looked like that and what was going on. I mean, maybe that's just what he's doing. He's he's letting his hair grow out and he he just woken up. I mean, a lot of those guys look kind of rough, but Wall especially stood out. Which was yeah, he looked like a character from Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas or something. Like just like it's some random movie where he's just like he just let himself go because that's what the role requires and stuff. But he's like, <laughs> but he's just happy about it and he's like, yeah, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. I don't know. It was weird, and yet you know, it's just one picture, whatever. Um, but anyway, so yeah, uh, talking about Wall actually on the floor um, and him as a leader, it's. It's uh, it's interesting because his game is um, isolation heavy because he has the ball in his hands a lot, and yet at the same time he's you know one of the best passers in the NBA when he's on, and um, you rightly note that you know he empowers his teammates through assists and he's really good at finding guys when uh, when he needs to and guys as long as they're in the right spots he'll hit them, um, but at the same time he's doing the opposite by dominating the ball so much and just, you know, holding on to it and pounding it and running around and other guys just don't get the same opportunities to play make or really move around the same, um, throw that in with Brooks system, which just doesn't really, it's, it's not very, uh, <laughs> creative, I guess you could say. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think admittedly, maybe I was a little too harsh on wall and, and less, critical I needed to be of Brooks's system. It's just mm. such a predictable and, and basic system. And they're going to run a lot of a lot of pin downs, a lot of flare screens, floppy sets, and stuff like that for, for Beal and Porter. They're two good shooters. Um, pick and roll with, with Wall. It's just a very basic offense that doesn't doesn't open up a lot of uh, opportunities beyond the first look. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, there's just not a lot of point guard and off-ball movement beyond their two, their two really good shooters. Um, and so... In, in that sense, it's not all Wall's fault. Um, no, but 
but yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely, Wall plays a big part in that. Yeah, it's one of those interesting dynamics between best player and the coach and how you figure that sort of stuff out, because ideally they work together, right, and, um, and all the opinions are taken in from the whole roster, but I, definitely your star player and um, the coach, and, and I'm not saying they don't talk or, um, you know, try to figure out what works best, but uh, you got to think that there's a better way to do what they're doing with what they've got. Um, yeah, and for sure. I mean, right now, Wall again dominating the ball. Like this past season, he had a twenty nine point one percent usage rate, and that's the third highest of his career. And in the playoffs, he had a thirty two point nine usage rate, which was the highest of his career in the playoffs. So um, he is dominating the ball a lot. And there are other players, especially now uh, with the acquisition of guys like Austin Rivers, like you mentioned. Um, there are other guys that can do some ball handling, and uh, you know if. If Wall um, will kind of be amenable to that, I guess we'll find out. Um, but also, if that happens, he's kind of got to change up his game a little bit. Yeah, you know, I mean, I think, I think, like you say, in fairness to him, the last the last few years, um, probably starting in 20, 2016 and earlier, there wasn't a lot of capable ball handlers beyond him. Their point guard, their backup point guard spot was really bad for a while. Um, Beal yeah. was more of a pure shooter and scorer than he was a a well-rounded offensive uh, star like he is nowadays. Mm-hmm. Um, Sadoransky's only been there two years, I believe. So, and even his rookie year, he was he showed some flashes, but it wasn't wasn't as good as he was this past year. Um, so, I think it's they're they're a really interesting team. I think I think the East and it overall is obviously going to be be really not as good as the West. Obviously, that's that's an easy thing to say. But there's a lot of intriguing teams and storylines surrounding teams for different reasons. Um, you have a lot of a lot of teams that are on the upswing, uh, like the Sixers and the Bucks, and even the Pacers to an extent, and the, obviously the, the Celtics. Um, you have teams kind of trying to to not put off a rebuild, but kind of they're hitting that inflection point, like the Raptors and the Wizards, and maybe even the Heat to an extent. Uh, could throw the Pistons in there. So there's a lot of just interesting storylines, um, and the, the Wizards are one of them. And seeing if, if Wall can can adapt his game a little more um, is going to be one of those intriguing storylines for sure. Yeah, speaking of the backup point guards, that was one of the weird like decisions in my mind um, this past postseason was like Sadoransky's been really good for them. And uh, I didn't think he got nearly enough time in the in the playoffs last year as as much as he should have. They, like Ty Lawson was played more and he was a late acquisition. Um, and he actually played pretty well. But I think, uh, I don't know, I just thought Sadoransky should have played more. And hopefully he, you know, continues to get some shine this year. Yeah, no, I I agree. I mean, well, Lawson obviously was not was not terribly at the sparks. He was he's good at getting in the lane and collapsing the defense and mm-hmm. and finding shooters. Um, but I just think the upside is so limited with a, with a six foot point guard who can't defend and yeah. isn't a great shooter. Um, whereas Sadoransky is a, a six seven point guard, I think, and really good length. Uh, didn't shoot a ton of threes last year, but I think shot over forty percent on the season. Um, he's a guy that um, if, even if his future is in Washington, I'm. I'm really curious to see where the rest of his career goes because he's a legitimately good NBA player, and there's a lot of teams that could use a, a long combo guard who can defend and, and shoot the three pretty well. Um, those those are guys who don't don't uh, don't grow on trees, um, especially the ones that can mix mix and match uh, defense and offense like that. Definitely, um, and I also <laughs> I just wanted to point this out, but your line about um, John Wall being a, like a helicopter parent, I uh, I really like that because. Um, <laughs> That's true, and uh, I mean, there. I was trying to think of what other NBA players are going to be like helicopter type parents, and I guess like the epitome of NBA helicopter parents in terms of like 
they do it constantly, but it works is the rockets with CP3 and Harden. Um, <laughs> Cause they, you know, everything runs through them all the time, but they have a high powered offense and a roster that's built to make that work. And uh, yeah, no, I, and you yeah. could probably throw Westbrook in there too. And so now it's yeah. like, it's like poor Scott, not poor Scott Brooks, but he's, he's been blessed and cursed with two tremendously talented point guards, but ones who, who dominate the ball and can't, can't play off of it as well as guys like Lowry and, and Lillard and, and Curry and guys like that can. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know how that, that line really came to be, but um, <laughs> I'm glad that, that people appreciate it because I, I was worried that it might go a little, little overlooked. The reference might go uh, unnoticed. But um, yeah, my, my editor, uh, obviously Jesse Blanchard, who's the editor-in-chief, was, he messaged me about that when he was editing it, and he, he, uh, he appreciated it too. So I'm, I'm glad I was getting some, uh, some love. <laughs> Definitely, yeah. No, it's a good line. Um, yeah, so off the ball, I think, is going to be the most interesting thing for John Wall. Um, I kind of forgot that I knew he'd gotten better at being a spot-up catch-and-shoot shooter, um, but I hadn't realized quite how good. And you kind of point that out in your article um, that you know he made 42.2% uh, from deep last season um, on catch-and-shoot shots, which is... Really good. Yeah. Um, no, yeah that, that was probably the, on the positive side of things, that was probably the most interesting stat I came across when I wrote this story. Yeah. Um, obviously, it's a, it's a fairly small sample size. Yeah. Um, less than 100 shots mm-hmm. isn't a ton. But I, but, but even then, like 44% on anything over about 50 attempts is pretty is pretty crazy. Um, I didn't know it was that good, but um, obviously the, the reason his numbers don't look that great beyond the argument. I mean, they're solid. Four attempts, 37% isn't terrible. Um, but he, he just shoots so many... Uh, pull up three as a kind of tank his percentage, which is common for a lot of high usage, high usage guards. Um, but yeah, that that, st- that stat really struck out to me and um, was, was a really interesting one to, to kind of come across, which is which is kind of the beauty of story sometimes. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, I think it's interesting too that um, you know that's a sort of at this point anyway, because a lot I think a lot of casual fans will still say that you know um, that'll be one of the knocks on wall is, you know, just sag off him and let him shoot threes because he can't shoot threes because everyone knows that John wall can't shoot threes, <laughs> but clearly he can. Um, yeah. and I think the moving forward and, um, you know, off ball is sort of a, another thing, but aside here, but in, in terms of like switching up possessions and maybe, um, trying to make them as a whole more efficient, not just him, the whole taking mid-range jump shots, um, in, especially in the current NBA landscape that, you know, it's, it's seen as archaic and in a lot of ways it is. Um, but if you're doing it and you're not doing it efficiently, then it's definitely a problem. And yeah. that was the case for like the whole Wizards team last season. And when they did it in the playoffs, I mean, I know that that was Toronto's whole game plan was limit the threes, protect the rim and give every single mid-range jumper they want. Like, let them take them all. And, yeah, no, uh, I, mean, I yeah. think I think it, it's so tough for a mid-range jumper to ever be efficient, just because. <laughs> I mean, if it's worth, <clears throat> geez, excuse me, there. Um, if a three is worth one and a half times as much, if you shoot forty-eight percent from from fourteen feet now, that's still only thirty-two percent from three. You know, so. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you shoot, I don't know the numbers exactly. I'm all I can't remember, but I don't think they were they were super efficient. So let's say you shoot thirty-eight percent from mid-range that's that's 25 percent from three so it's like all you have to do is be worse than marcus smart from three and you are <laughs> and you are more efficient shooting those shots um but obviously there's a, there's a fine balance defenses want to take away the threes and if you're going to get open 
open mid-range shots like guys like DeRozan and mm-hmm. McCollum and even Gordon Hayward and Chris Milton, things like that. Guys who shoot a lot of mid-range jumpers. Um, if you can hit those when they're open, um, never a bad shot. An open shot for, for good shooters and scorers is never a bad idea, but I just think Wall has too many possessions where he hit. The thing that always comes to my mind is he, he comes around a pick and roll, does a couple of dribbles between his legs, mm-hmm. uh, gets their defender retreat in a couple steps, um, and then pulls up and yeah, and the majority of the time he's not making it um, from from 16 feet. Um, but yeah, the the second half of his the the issue with with three point shooting is is one half is to make threes. You know, you got you got to make them if defenses are going to leave you open, totally fine. But the second part is getting those defenses to cover you because you can because stretching the floor and being a floor spacer is more than just hitting threes a respectable clip, mm-hmm. um, which I'm sure obviously you know and a lot of people know. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know you. If, if you're open all the time and, and defenses are still collapsing on your teammates' drive to the rim or your, or your big men's post touches and stuff like that, it's not serving the same purposes if they're glued to you on the perimeter, you know. So I think part of that is just him continuing to, to shoot him at a, at a pretty decent rate um, and, and forcing defenses to respect him more and let Beal have room to operate, let Porter have room, um, I guess let Dwight Howard have room to operate in the post, which I'm not looking forward to seeing. That's another, <laughs> that's another uh, story. Um, but yeah, his, his growth as a shooter is... It's really fascinating because it, that's that's the the storyline on our all athletic point guards coming out of the coming out of college or coming into the draft, right? Can they become a good shooter? And and Wallace proven that he can become a capable shooter. Yeah, I don't think you have to worry too much about Dwight Howard. He said he's going to turn into Kevin Durant. So, I mean, you know. Yeah, I mean, there's just a final. <laughs> I mean, I, he's a guy that he seems really nice. I I enjoy. He's got a fun, charismatic persona. Mm-hmm. Um, he's clearly trying to do. Do more in every offseason. You seem encouraged, but um, just recent reports, or not recent, but every year, um, it doesn't seem to quite work out. Um, he demands so many post touches. He's not really an efficient post scorer. Um, he's an inconsistent screener. Um, so, I mean, I, I hope it works out. He's a guy that I think is a is he's a good person. Um, he's been a dominant player that I think um, is kind of get, that's getting overshadowed nowadays. Um, but the the things he does well or wants to do well on offense just don't quite mesh with with the current NBA for as, for, as, for as hard as he works to try and change that idea. Yep. I mean, if he figures it out in Washington, that could be really good for them. But uh, I have a hard time believing it just based on a massive sample size that we have of several years now. Um, yeah. So, you know, and the guy's going I'm, into year 15. So Yeah, I'm in that same boat. From an NBA perspective, I'd, I'd love to see him him figure it out and the Wizards become a, a contender for a top four seed. Um, yeah. But just I don't have a ton of hope. Um I don't want to rule it out because you just don't know how each locker room and, and teammates mesh, obviously. Um, but there's just not a not a lot of substantiated hope that it's going to work out, unfortunately. Yeah, for sure. Um, I sir, uh, circling back to the uh, efficiencies and shooting and stuff. I do think, uh, like you mentioned, you mentioned in the article about how um, those are the types of possessions, like the wall, you know working his way into shooting mid-range jumpers, those are the types of possessions that they need to sort of forego and just find a way to make more position or more efficient possessions depending on what, you know, whatever that you want that to be. Is it getting somebody else to do some more playmaking and finding stuff that way? Is it having um, Wall potentially shoot more threes, um, you know, sticking around the yeah, perimeter? Yeah, you, you, you think, you look at on the surface from their team last year, I mean, I mean, or maybe two years ago. I don't know. I didn't take a look at their offensive efficiency from, six, from the 2016-17 season, but mm-hmm. um, you, you look at you look at that, and you have 
you have an efficient scorer and shooter in Otto Porter, um, a dynamic mm-hmm. scorer in Bradley Beal, and a, one of the top five or ten playmakers in the league in, in John Wall, plus a, a guy like Marcin Gortat is probably one of the best screeners in the league to free up a lot of stuff off the ball. Um, and that, that should be a pretty good recipe for a, for a top ten offense with all that. And you look at the, the results, and it just hasn't, hasn't shown that to be true. Um, I think a lot of that falls on on Wall and Scott Brooks' shoulders. Mm-hmm. Um, how much each side, how much each person you want to uh, give blame to is another story. Um, but that, but that should be a recipe for a pretty good, um, pretty good uh, offense. And now with Dwight coming in, he's a, he's a guy who's a better, better uh, dynamic pick and roll threat than Marching Gortat ever yep. was or ever will be. Um, so you you think there should be the the, uh, the path to a top ten, top eight offense with with what they have there. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, there, there definitely should be. Um, it'll be really interesting. The thing that one of the things that stuck out, probably the thing that stuck out to me most about this in your whole piece was this the insane stat that <laughs> Wall only had one cut last season, like <laughs> one. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I I think I tweeted that out and uh, tweeted that out and it got it, it didn't didn't blow up or anything, but it got a fair amount of interaction. Um, in in Matt Moore of Action Network uh, specified or clarified for me that it was it is one possession where it results in a, a turnover or a shot um so to, to wallace court i'm sure he had more more than just one possession where he cut into the lane um but yeah. still even then um <laughs> i looked it up and it was it was a turnover yeah um i didn't find it anywhere i i was not going to look for that um in 41 games over 1200 minutes of action or something um but yeah that that stat was really jarring and i remember because because Moore did a piece i think midway through his absence and when it was like, oh, the Wizards better without John Wall, and he kind of looked at their difference in, in play style and whatnot, and he had had just one cut then, too. So in the next 20 games or when he came back, he didn't make a single cut that resulted in a in a box score uh, number, um, which was even more crazy because he had he had that stat in February or March or whatever, and, and then when Wall came back, he, it didn't change, um, mm-hmm. which was just wild to me, and that was just such a crazy stat because when you look at him, he's he's a guy, he's, he's super quick, he's explosive, um, yep. When he's off the ball, you gotta think there's opportunities for him to, to cut into the lane, uh, either based off uh, set plays or just uh, impromptu, instinctual stuff. Um, yep. But yeah, that was just a really weird um, stat that I didn't. I mean, I, I I knew what to do with it, what to make of it, especially after watching watching a few games um, leading up to this piece, and obviously watching them a fair amount throughout the year. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was one that you was just like, I, I want a lot more context for this, and I want to. Want to figure out what's going on with that, you know? Yeah, it's just it's wild. When the one of the wildest things is when you put it next to um, Westbrook's, and Westbrook had like I think like twenty four of those cuts that resulted yeah, in a shot at least turn. at least one like one like every three games or something. Yeah, uh, and I think over the last because I looked over the last three years, so I was like, okay, let's be fair to Wall. Like he had some he had some different injuries this year, knee stuff. Uh, he had a shoulder injury earlier in the year, um, and I think it only. I think I I think I had the stat in, this, in, in my piece, but I think it was 24 over three years for Wall and like 27 yeah. for Westbrook this year. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, obviously Wall's missed some time, but that's still like 180 games or something compared to 80. Yeah. Um, so that that was the thing that kind of pushed me over the edge, where I was like, okay, this isn't just an injury related uh, habit. You know, it's something that's been been an issue to a slightly lesser degree over the last three years, or at least as far back as I have access to on on NBA.com synergy uh, data. Um, but yeah, it was one of those things where it's just okay. It's I, I gave him the benefit of the doubt through one season, but then you look back even farther, and like okay, this is a 
a reoccurring theme with him. Yeah, and Westbrook gets burned a lot for that stuff too. Um, I think you hear, yeah, you hear and, about yeah, it almost as much as, if not more, than Wall. Yeah, and he's he's a little more high profile player, and he yeah, and whatnot. So I think it's it's justified to an extent. Yep. He, he does have to be better off the ball, but that's we can talk about him for ages, obviously, uh-huh. um, both good and bad. Um, but yeah, it, it was just interesting to, to juxtapose those guys, especially with their connection to Scott Brooks and their connection is is kind of ball dominant guys who are better with the ball in their hands, not great shooters. Uh, or not, they don't command a lot of attention off the ball as shooters either. So it was just interesting to, to see that and how just the varying degrees of how much they they uh, do stuff off the ball as cutters and whatnot. Yeah, so it's interesting. I wanted to mention too, um, just the the notion of um, letting some of the other playmakers assume more of the playmaking duties because I think that's really interesting. Um, especially when you focused a little bit more on Bradley Beal as a playmaker because um, he's proven to be a pretty good playmaker, uh, especially yeah. last season, and he kind of broke out a little bit that way um, when Wall was injured. And uh, I, th- I think that was really interesting because there's always like this debate. I don't really know if Wizards fans have it, but it seems like everybody outside of it is always asking, is Wall really better than Beal? Is Beal better? Should Beal be the primary option? Should they be <laughs> staggered more between starting and closing? Like, I don't know. What do you think about all that? Yeah, um, and I, I think at his peak, Wall is a better player. I think last year Beal was was obviously better. He was healthy and yeah. more efficient. And and there's a number of different reasons you could you could say um, Wall was better or not Wall. Excuse me, Beal was better than Wall last season. Um, but I, I I looked at a lot some of the numbers too because I wanted to see okay maybe is staggering the better option. And I I totally spaced on adding that um, in my piece, but. The numbers are not in favor of, of staggering those guys. They're both better together than they are off. Yeah. Um, and so that's that's a tough thing. And, I, and that's the way with most backcourts. It's the way it is with Portland. Uh, I'm sure it's the way it, I'm sure it's the way it was with with uh, DeRozan and Lowry. Um, it's the way it is, even mm-hmm. is, is in Golden State. Um, so that's a tough thing to ask. But the numbers are pretty drastically different there. Um, the, the I mean, there was a ton of different stats that that uh, really wowed me and, and kind of caught me off guard but um the fact that that beal's been such a better uh pick and roll guy uh according mm-hmm. to synergy over, even over the last three years two years where wall was healthy um kind of stuck out to me because i mean obviously pick and roll isn't the end all be all as a, as a playmaker but obviously it's the prominent play yep. in the nba nowadays as a ball handler um and you, you do you do a lot more shooting out of that i tend to say as a guy like beal um but even then it it was interesting to see how much better Beal has been this year, um, and even last year when, when or twenty sixteen seventeen when Wall had a career year, um, Beal was a better pick and roll guy. Um, so I, I just think that in theory, um, you want you want Ball to play on Beal. Excuse me, uh, combining their names, um, <laughs> you want Beal to play on the ball more. Um, yeah. And I got a lot of, got a lot of responses uh, to my article that. In theory, it's a better idea, and that you can't play Wall off the ball because he's not very good off the ball. And my mm-hmm. whole thing was, well, that's that's what I'm trying to get at is, is yeah. Beal is Wall needs to be better off the ball because Beal has become such a good playmaker and scorer. Um, and so um, I I think that Beal deserves to to have more more opportunities as a playmaker with uh, alongside Wall. One of the stats that I didn't include, but I came across was Beal had twice as many assists. Uh, off when Wall was off the court last season than he did on, and it was mm-hmm. only in like 200 or 400 more minutes. 
mm-hmm. which is really interesting to me. Obviously, yeah. that's how it's going to be. Wall is going to dominate a lot of the, the assist and the playmaking responsibilities, but I think the numbers point that Beal has earned a bigger share of those type of those type of plays uh, going forward. Yeah, I definitely think they should have Beal on ball more. Um, I thought this for a little while, especially after watching him last year, because um, I think he's really good. I think he's maybe a little, sometimes a little underrated in that aspect. He's even been better in the, in doing those mid-range shots, those same mid-range shots that Wall loves to take. Beal's better, just a better shooter in general. We know this, but... Um, yeah, he's, he's a really good player, and I don't think a lot of, I don't think he gets a lot of his due. Um, he, can, he kind of just goes about his business. He's not, he's not like kind of the the archaic score and player that Mar DeRozan is. He's not, mm-hmm. he's not Clay Thompson who plays on the, the best team in the league. He's not CJ McCollum who's an av- avid opponent of, of those super teams. He's not James Harden. He's not Jimmy Butler. Mm-hmm. He just kind of goes about his business and he's not as good as James Harden and, and Jimmy Butler. I'm not trying to throw him in that class, but mm-hmm. he's a, he's just a really good player. who's gotten better each year and now he's, he doesn't really get injured anymore, which I think is huge too. Yeah. I'd probably put him close to like, I think Clay Thompson's better, but I think I'd probably put him close to like a Clay Thompson kind of tier. Um, obviously, Thompson's yeah. better overall, but I think it's I think those are two like in some ways those guys are kind of comparable. Yeah, I, I think I, I think I did I did player rankings yesterday for B-ball breakdown. We're doing our, our top fifty thing, and, and Jesse asked for our top twenty. And I think I Clay at nineteen or twenty. I'd have Beal somewhere in in the mid to late twenties, probably. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd have to think about it a little more in depth, but luckily I have lots of time to. to to do that and keep those thoughts to myself before ever making them public because that just feels like a not a, no, you can't win there. But I think uh, <laughs> no, I think I would I would have Beal somewhere in the late twenties, maybe even low thirties. Um, but he's he's really good and obviously a little bit of a tear down from from Clay Thompson. But he's a guy who's established himself as a top twenty five, top thirty guy in the league. Yeah, definitely. And it's interesting as you note, um, like right after the, these points about. Um, uh, personnel it's important as especially as a coach because you're always sort of walking a fine line with certain things especially when you want to not necessarily like this wouldn't really be upending anything but when you're asking guys to do things they haven't done before um you know the immediate response is going to be why or why should i do this or what purpose will this serve and you know you have to have the answers to those questions um but you know in terms of personnel like yeah john wall is best when he has the ball in his hands and um, Beal does, you know, he automatically provides gravity when he's out there, um, even when he's off the ball and he's standing around the three-point line. Like, these are things that, that matter um, even before, you know, adding stuff that might be vital, like having Wall play better off ball. It's still like that fine line that um, Brooks, as a coach, kind of has to walk to keep his guys happy, right? Yeah. Um, I, I think it's one of those things where John Wall is a better player with the ball in his hands. But I think moving him off the ball more is a better way to reach Washington's ceiling. Yeah. So uh, a great example, obviously, is the Raptors this past year. Mm-hmm. Uh, Larry moved off the ball more. He set more screens off the ball. Mm-hmm. He was more of a spot-up guy, catch-and-shoot yep. guy. And um, obviously that's a lot easier said than done. And, and offensive uh, revampings like that are are more outliers than they are uh, the norm. Mm-hmm. But I think we're reaching a point in Washington where if they go 44 and 38 this year and, and losing the first round in six games, you're kind of wondering what's what's the value in, in keeping this team together. And I, I am I've always been of the the idea that there's value in making the playoffs. But I think yep. Washington is such a big market that you can't pitch that somewhere like that, whereas you could in Oklahoma City or Portland or Utah places like that. So 
it'll be a really interesting thing to see in what what Wall is going to do if if that's a talk they have this year. Obviously, I'm not I don't cover the team. I'm not day to day things. I'm a beat reporter, but it'll be really interesting to see what what happens this year if that's a, if that's a conversation that comes up. If that's something we see in the preseason, if that's rumors that we start getting from from Candace Buckner, uh, who covers the Wizards for the Washington Post, things like that. So it'll be it's a really interesting dynamic because um, I, I don't remember. I guess the, there were there were reports last year that the the the, the Raptors were going to change their offense, right? And, they, and then it came to fruition. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. They, yeah so well, you can see in the, in the next month or so, a month or two, if there's reports that that we're going to see a wall off the ball more, we're going to see a Beal with the ball in his hands more. Brooks is going to have uh, revamp his offense, but uh, it, it feels more like a pipe dream, unfortunately. Uh, yeah. It was a, it was a piece I wanted to write and one I was excited to write about. But I, I don't have a lot of confidence that's something that's going to change uh, all of a sudden. Yeah, the Raptors thing kind of felt almost like a, a, li- a bit of a miracle um, and heavily depended on the culture that they set up because, uh, you know, they had Coach Casey around for so long and he knew DeRozan and Lowry so well that I think that's a big reason why this worked. But, I mean, Nick Nurse had been kind of pushing to change this offense for a few years prior to last season. Um, and it only really came to fruition this past year. So uh, that that's something to look into. But, like, for the Wizards, because, I mean, any any sort of change like that, I always you have to give huge credit to not just the coaching staff but the players as well because it's one of those things where everybody has to buy in because um, they are a team that has had success in the past playing the way that they do now. And, you know, sometimes it can be hard to talk them out of, out of that and saying, oh, this, this can be better because, you know, the last time they um, – they were like a game away from when Wall was healthy. They were a game away from the Eastern Conference Finals, and they played that game seven against Boston. And you know, again, probably because of the way they play right now. But Wall ran out of gas, and that was the Kelly Olynyk game in the fourth quarter, and all <laughs> oh my of that. Gosh, but, yeah, that was that was quite the the spectacle. And to be <laughs> fair, uh, I have I have realized that part of the reason he ran out of gas wasn't just that he played on the ball, but it was also because they didn't have a lot of viable options. It's true. Yeah. wasn't ready to play a lot. Beal wasn't quite the same. Playmaker, but I think it played a role that he wasn't—he didn't play off the ball very much. I remember watching that game, and he was just so ball dominant and, mm-hmm. and taking so many shots and making so many passes and whatnot. Yep. Um, but like you said, changes a lot. Change takes years. Uh, guys work on trying to become better defenders, better shooters, better passers every offseason, and it never doesn't necessarily uh, ever come to fruition. Yeah. And so you want you wonder. Uh, it's tough to say. Tough to guarantee that one offseason of emphasis on, on more movement, more player movement is, is uh, something that's enough to, to see a new, new, uh, new offense in Washington. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I did want to mention briefly too. Um, this isn't like directly in your piece, but just because uh, it, your piece is about um, leadership and like on, on the floor leadership. And um, I, I do think, you know, if these sorts of changes happen and stuff like walls, just by example, by way of example, walls game, it will be, um, better in terms of uh, sort of just visual leadership. But the Wizards have also, for years now, had these you know inner turmoil in the locker room and stuff like that. And some of the responses they've had have been immature. I think some of them are overblown, but I do think some of them are kind of immature. And I wonder if, you know, if that stuff is something that needs to change too for the team to be really successful. Yeah, and I think Wall is the guy who sets the tone there. Too many, too many times, and too often he he either dribbles the ball at the top of the key and, fi- and finds the guy and makes makes potential assist, 
or he passes it off and just stands there and and that's the type of thing that you you that radiates throughout the rest of the team they see their best player or, or leader doing that and and they, they don't run through their sets as hard and you can see it I mean there's just too many times where where Beal and Porter just come around those 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 pin downs and whatnot just so nonchalantly and they're not even like they're trying to create separation from their defender yeah. and I think I don't think that's all on Wall. It'd be it's unfair to, to blame him for those those tendencies, but I think it's something that starts and and plays a role. And they're they're kind of they're lazy, not lazy, but just casual uh, approach to to coming around screens and running the offense. Yeah, they look a little lethargic. There was the one clip you showed there. Yeah, of, yeah, just, that's the way, that's a, a really that's the best way to best phrase to use there. Um, yeah, they're really just running through the motions. Um, yes, exactly. There's not a lot of urgency from them. Yeah, I, I do worry. I, I worry about that a little bit with the Wizards, especially with um, the Dwight Howard addition and all those uh, rumors you hear about guys not having liked Howard in the locker room. But you never know. This could be the perfect spot for him. But um, it's it's just one of those things where, like, you know, there's some stuff I think the Wizards as a team, they just need to just back off doing the same as whatever. There are certain questions, like when, say, you know, Wall recently said about, well, he thinks the Wizards are, like, you know, one of the better teams in the East, too, like a top three team or whatever. I mean, that's fine, because what do you expect Wall to say when you ask him that question? Um, but yeah. but there are other things, like, you know, dressing up and all, have your team dress up in all black because they're going to have a funeral, uh, whatever. That's a little silly to me. I, I don't think, it's a little too much into the theatrics and stuff like that. I think... I think that stuff is the kind of stuff they need to back off a little bit and just focus focus on the season. And I, you know, I think yeah, they have a high ceiling. I will but. say, in terms of the Dwight fit, I'm less worried about the locker room thing than I am just the pure offensive fit. Mm-hmm. Uh, Gortat, Gortat had his deficiencies both on and off the court. But one, yeah. he was a very low-usage low, low usage offensive player. He wasn't in demand post touches. He's going to get all his buckets off of pick and rolls and putbacks. Two, he's one of the best, if not the best, screener in the NBA. And when you have two really good shooters like Porter and Beal, you're gonna need you're gonna need that. That's a necessary piece. Whereas uh, Dwight's gonna want post touches. He's gonna bog down the offense even a little more with with those post touches. They're not a super lively and springy offense as is. He's he's not gonna set consistent screens as much. He, he can set screens. He's a pretty solid screen setter, but it's more consistent. And I just worry about whether or not he's gonna have a positive impact on the offense, like. Like we're taught, they weren't. He's better defensively, so they might they'll be a better defensive team probably. But offensively, I just worry. Yeah, and that's that's a fair concern. I think Howard's, um, you know, he's an interesting fit on pretty much any team in the modern NBA, um, just because his offensive game doesn't really translate fantastically well to for you know for really any team. But um, yeah, we'll see. I guess. I mean, I think teams are going to keep taking a chance on him because there are still things he does well and. Um, yeah, and to know. be fair, I understand why the Wizards did it. There wasn't a lot of upside with with the current core with Gortat at center. Yeah, uh, there's, a lot, there's a lot more upside to Dwight. Maybe it clicks and he becomes a guy who, who's an efficient post scorer. He doesn't take as many post post up opportunities. He's a better screener. He's a good role man with John Wall and Bradley Beal. So I understand the upside of it. I'm not necessarily trying to trying to criticize the signing. I think it was a little little weird that the actual contract itself, even a player option after one year. But mm-hmm. uh, the, the signing itself, just adding him to the team, I, I think makes sense because there's not a lot of internal growth and opportunity to be had with the current core that was in place. Yeah, definitely. Um, quickly, I want to talk about uh, just writing in general because this is one of my favorite things to do near the end of the podcast. The guests I bring on, um, always writers. And 
everybody has different, you know, different uh, mindsets about writing, different styles of writing, different ways of writing. Um, and I've talked to a lot of sports writers, and um, it's interesting because you know a lot of pieces are uh, on similar sort of topics, but like everybody has their own unique voice. Even if you're going about writing something in the same general direction, uh, there's always something unique you can find in there. And I noticed. Um, with yours, so this is this particular piece is like a breakdown of style of play, but with the Wizards and Wall. Um, but I know you write like a ton of stuff. You're always writing and thinking of ideas and things. Are these your favorite kinds of pieces to write, where you dig into the numbers, or is it the story first you look for, or uh, how do you go about doing that? Yeah, I'd say from an NBA writing perspective, these are my favorite uh, film breakdowns, stuff like that. My favorite, from a from purely a writing perspective, obviously I, I write for the Gonzaga Bulls and Sue Steps a lot more uh, feet on the ground, uh, talking to sources and whatnot. I, I really love feature writing, so I'd say that's that's my, my favorite thing to do. But um, from an NBA perspective, I, I really like really like find find an idea when that when that idea kind of pops into your head. It's such a fascinating uh, kind of next few next few thoughts and and whatnot. Figuring out, okay, is this can I write enough for this to be a story? Uh, what's it going to look like? How, what are my What are my thoughts on this thing I just came about? Um, and truthfully, a lot of a lot of my story ideas come from just talking with people about the NBA. I have a few that that kind of just come from from me scrounging on on NBA.com and mm-hmm. and synergy and whatnot, and just just finding fun numbers and and all that jazz. But uh, a lot of it just comes from talking with people, and I think, oh, that's 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 an interesting point that I made or, or he or she made. Uh, is that a story? Is that just something that I can I can find there? And then, then you go and watch a game or two, and uh, you you realize, okay, wow, this this is something that that the that the numbers in the eye test match up. So yeah. I, the the development and whether or not something is just worth like a tweet or if it's actually worth a story is really is really a fascinating relationship for me. Yeah, that's one of the better aspects of Twitter. Um, <laughs> you can have those conversations sometimes, and people spark those ideas in your head. Uh, which is pretty neat. Also, one of the reasons that I think it's important to always be reading uh, as a writer, because you never know, you can be reading somebody else's piece on something, and like one sentence that they have might trigger a story idea for you that could be yeah. No, I've, thing. I've had plenty of uh, plenty of times where I've, I've read a story and they've had a little nugget of information, and I've gone, okay, that's interesting. That's something I noticed watching the game too, or, or looking at the box score. Let's let's look into that and see if that's the story. One that comes to mind, I can't remember who it was on the Ringer, but they wrote they wrote something about how. Uh, Dwayne Casey was struggling to coach, coaching that second round against the Cavs, and mm-hmm. uh, part of it was it was either game two or three when Kevin Love just bullied CJ Miles on the block repeatedly, oh, yeah. and yeah. Uh, that decision to, to let Miles keep guarding uh, Love was a bad decision by Casey. And I was like, that's interesting. I kind of noticed that, like, like Love was just feasting at undersized guys, and so I did some research and I was like, wow, he's really only really only feasting because of these post ups. I mean, he had a little bit of he had some threes and, and beat. Valentino's off the dribble, but uh, and that kind of sparked the piece, and that's just kind of the, the things that I love is reading, and another thing reading does, it just improves you as a writer. You find things that, oh, I like the word this guy uses, the language they use, yeah. and so obviously that's, that's something we all kind of share with writers, but um, having other pieces kind of spark uh, ideas for you is really fascinating as well. Yeah, definitely. I'm big on diction, because I, I, mean, I was an English major when I was in university, um, so I'm always, I love words with a passion and the etymology of words and everything like that. Um, so I'm a big words guy. If I find a word I haven't seen before, I will like use it for like three weeks straight. Cause I love it. Um, I'm the exact same way when it yeah. comes to cross stuff. And I, I think the people who are able to, 
to craft such a unique voice and through kind of a, a unique diction and syntax are really fascinating writers. Mm-hmm. Um, that's something I, I'm always trying to improve as a writer. Um, I, I read people and I, I have friends that are, are really great with that. So it always fascinates me when they're able to, to have a really distinct voice, whereas if you if you write it and you didn't see their byline, you could probably guess it was their work, you know, which I think is always kind of the, one of the ultimate goals as a writer is to have such a unique and, and thorough and articulate voice. Yeah, it's real. It's a really um, relieving and sort of liberating feeling when you finally find your voice as a writer, I think, because it takes a long time to get there. Um, I know for a lot of writers, they start off and it's you you write in the voice of somebody you've been reading or, you, you know, you're like a, a shell version of that um, because it's somebody you admire. And, you know, if you keep going and working at it and Eventually, you sort of find your own style, your own voice, which tends to be a, an incorporation of a lot of different things, and uh, and those are always cool. So they're like everybody's voice is almost like a Frankenstein monster of like a bunch of other things. Yeah, and I, I think the the challenge that I've kind of encountered as I, as I write quite frequently is is making sure I have a very wide ranging voice because too often I realize I'll be three hundred words into a story or something and compares to the last story I wrote, and I'm like, wow, that the style is so similar that it's probably my voice, but it is just so monotonous and repetitive. Yeah. My last piece that I, I don't know how much intrigue there is, you know, even mm. if the topic is, is vastly different. So I think making sure that, that your voice isn't just repetitive is, is super, is a big challenge for me. And I'm sure it's a challenge for a lot of writers, but a, that development is, is a fast, is an intriguing one for me. Yeah. Those, that's how I, uh, I always try and find um, interesting lead-ins to pieces that are like different every single time because I think that's how I keep myself interested, maybe as much as a reader. Um, yeah, you know, I, I, would, I would agree with with any long-form story, whether it be just a an analysis piece about the NBA or being a feature story. Yeah, uh, I get really excited when I when I when that lead clicks. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm like, okay, I got I got to write this down, and then. And then I can just kind of start working my ideas. And because when you have a story, you know what you're going to write about, but you want that lead to hook people in. And uh, I think one of one of the people I think is, is really great with leads is, uh, is Justin Jett, who writes for uh, Def Pen. Whenever I read his stuff, yeah. his leads are always just so unique and mm-hmm. and so relevant to his topics that uh, it's just one of those one of those things that kind of inspires me to be a better better lead writer. I think too often I'm I have one of those things where you know it's just kind of a, a recap or it's a little boring, but when you get when you find that good lead, it's like okay, you just want to start writing all of it now. And it, for me personally, it just kind of ins- it gets gets the juices flowing and gets gets the ball rolling. Yeah, I mean, I know we're in August and uh, we're light on NBA topics, but like I I would I didn't even imagine that I'd be writing anything about a Raptors signing Greg Monroe because it's not <laughs> it's not that exciting. But as soon as I started delving into like anachronisms, uh, <laughs> that was when I was like, oh yeah, I need to I'm going to write about anachronisms and by extension get to write about greg monroe so. <laughs> yeah i know it, it is it's it's crazy how how stories just kind of come about topics come about you know when the, when the season ended in, in june or whatever i was man like, i don't i don't know i'm gonna write about it. i don't have any stories in the dock uh on the docket i i don't know how much i'm gonna write over the over the summer you know i have a lot of time but i don't know what's really gonna come come to uh come to light you know and, and i have had no no shortage of ideas uh for a while now and i just I have so many just story ideas littered throughout my notes on my phone that, that I'm hoping to get to within the next month or so. But it's just crazy how, how they come about. You know, you can sit there in June and just be like, well, the NBA season's over. What's there to write about? Obviously, there's a lot that goes on beyond that. But it's just, just crazy. I'm here in August and I'm, I've probably got two or three story ideas that I'm sitting on and working on right now that I didn't 
I never foresaw coming uh, two months ago. Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, I need to start scrounging myself for the next thing because I'm not sure yet. But uh, I'm I'm too focused on uh, R.J. Barrett playing tonight. In, uh <laughs> he's in Canada. So. Yeah, I gotta I gotta get into that 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 those draft prospect guys too. That's it's I, I don't understand. I am baffled if people can balance writing about the NBA a ton and the draft at the same time because yeah. for me, I couldn't really get into it until like mid May and when there's only one game a night or one game every other night. Mm-hmm. And you, you know what? You watch a little bit throughout the year, but. The people who are able to do both of those at the same time are just I, t- I, I tip my hat to them because it's such a tough balance. I kind of have to do one or the other. Yeah, it's majorly impressive. I've only I've barely done it. I did it when uh, Wiggins played. I did I watched the Wiggins season as a Canadian. Anytime there's a big time Canadian prospect, I'll pay attention. But I I rarely pay much attention to the college ball outside of the um, outside of the general buzz of the draft prospects. So uh, yeah, and, yeah. I, and obviously I I fell on Zag because I covered them and they're. They're one of the better teams in the in the yeah. every year. Uh, but that, but beyond that, you know, you watch the occasional game on ESPN or whatever. And, uh, but I, I, I can't say that I have a lot of time or or yeah. energy to, to follow teams beyond Gonzaga. If I'm trying to follow the NBA at the same time, it's a it's a big big commitment there. But uh, hats off to all the people who can do it. It's it's quite impressive. Yeah, really is. Um, yeah, that's about uh, about that's all the time we have at the moment so um i wanted to thank you for coming on jackson i really appreciate it uh is there anything you want to plug before we go um i mean you can find my work at, at b-ball breakdown at liberty ballers uh coming soon at, at b-ball index we're writing about the nuggets there which i'm really excited about uh the site's going to be awesome really a lot of great writers great great graphics people good editors um it's going to be a really in-depth and unique site i think uh in terms of what's coming up i'll have a story uh, next day or so, hoping to get it finished tonight, uh, about how Gordon Hayward's going to kind of reinvigorate the Celtics, uh, once middling offense from last year, which I'm really excited about. Um, I, I kind of forgot how dang good Gordon Hayward is at basketball. So that's been a fun, <laughs> fun experience over the last few days. Um, but nothing else really on the docket. Um, th- this was really interesting. I think it was, it was fun to kind of bounce between, uh, NBA analysis, writing analysis, and just general thoughts about the league and the writing process. Um, just a very, very diverse uh, set of topics, which is always a, a fun, fun experience. Yeah, definitely. Um, definitely appreciate it. Uh, it was awesome having you on. We'll definitely have to have you on again sometime. Um, yeah, if you haven't uh, read Jackson's stuff yet, you can go read it. Go read that piece on the Wizards. Again, it's called To Avoid Sustained Mediocrity, John Wall and the Wizards Must Evolve, and it uh, is on uh, clutchpoints.com, b-ball breakdown. So you can go read it there. And um, until then, you can find uh, this podcast, the Writer's Right podcast, on Anchor.fm or the Anchor app. I'm still testing this out um, since Bumpers is now gone. Uh, so we're going to see how that goes. We'll keep, we'll keep an eye out, and I'll keep listening to listener recommendations about the podcast. Uh, you can also follow the podcast on Twitter at Writer's Right Pod, uh, where I will post links to the episodes and to the articles that my guests have written. Um, until then, you can follow me at Howvolution on Twitter, and you can find my own online work at Raptors Republic, occasionally B-Ball Breakdown, and Scene Creek if you are a movie fan. So thank you for listening, and we will see you next time.